0: If you would, turn your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me, just, uh, let me just kind of throw out a comment that one of the reasons why we uh, every now and then would we'll do a couple of verses uh, a cappella. Uh, one of the main reasons for that is because in Ephesians when it, when it talks about our singing hymns and singing songs, you know we're not just singing to God and for God and about God. The idea is that we are actually singing to each other. and the idea of that is as we sing to each other uh, that that's to encourage us to strengthen us and it's amazing how many people as, as you if you grow up in church and you you hear hymns and you sing hymns, uh, there are many times in your life when you go through maybe times of difficulty or times where things are, are, are particularly hard, and you not only remember what the Word of God says, there'll be hymns and songs or portions of hymns and songs that maybe you've now, by that time, sung hundreds of times that kind of reminds us of the truths of the Word of God, and it brings comfort to our heart and brings encouragement. Uh, so it's always good to hear when we sing a cappella because we normally pick songs that, A, you know well and you sing out on, um, and um, if you're sitting in the back, uh, it's a real drag. You don't get to hear what we hear in the front. Uh, so uh, when you sit in the front, you hear all these voices coming up, and it's really, really cool uh, to, to hear the voices being sung out that way and to know that we together are singing about our Lord and Savior and singing to each other of His great love for us and His care. Let's pray. Fathers, we come before you this morning. Again, we uh, ask that you will continue to bless our time together. Father, we know that we are here to worship you and to honor you, and we know also, Lord, that uh, we are the ones who receive the benefit of that. Uh, We are encouraged and strengthened uh, that this time for us to be here together is profitable. And Lord, along the way, as we worship you, we not only pray and sing, but we also hear your word being read, and we also, Father, want your word to be explained and to be um, declared. And Father, we ask that you would give wisdom, as I attempt to do this this morning, Uh, Father, I don't ask that the Word of God, as I preach this morning, will somehow be inspiring or really be anything. I just ask, Lord, that it be honoring to you and that it be beneficial to us. And, uh, Father, that you would minister to our hearts through the proclamation of your Word. So, Father, as always, it is with eagerness that we come before your Word and, again, anticipate your blessing. And we do ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Beginning in verse 10, Paul writes these things. Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanas. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with the wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. So as we begin to look at this section, again, Paul begins by pleading with them. He says, I plead with you, brethren, by the name, or some translations will say, in the name of our Lord or our Lord Jesus. Now, remember, again, Paul has already mentioned that he is an apostle. We know that because he's an apostle, that that office carries some weight and authority. But he's not throwing that around. He's not, uh, you know, basically he's speaking with authority, but he's not pointing to himself as the authority. Here he is pleading with these believers with a sense of urgency because of the difficulties that they're having. And he is pleading with them with a sense of urgency concerning how the lordship of Christ should create unity among his followers. Now you need to remember that. In every society, in every century or every decade, there are things that kind of naturally divide people up. And we live in a time and age in our country where even though a lot of individuals are trying to, at least they say they're emphasizing our diversity, uh, it seems that we are more divided now than ever before. There are more things that divide us. More things that drive us apart in our culture. And that also has an effect on the church. We are people who live in the culture. And if we are not reminded of what the word of God says, if we're not continuing to grow as believers, not only do we get caught up in those things in the world, but we sometimes, and maybe often, bring those things with us in the body of believers. And so here... These kinds of things have happened. And we'll take a a brief look at that as we work our way through. But the idea, again, is that as we submit ourselves to the lordship of Jesus Christ, as we submit ourselves to who God is, living in obedience to what he has said, that then should by itself create not only a sense of unity, but a very real unity that we share together as his followers. It's also interesting to point out that the name Christ is used ten times in the first ten verses of 1 Corinthians. And I believe Paul uses the name Christ so often because he is emphasizing that they, he is emphasizing that you and I are a part of Christ's community. This, that's, that's who this church belongs to. This church belongs to Christ. Every church that gathers together in the name of Christ is a church that belongs to Christ. It is his community. Whether we're speaking of the local church or the universal church, uh, the bottom line is it belongs to him. And so we, as a local church, all local churches, all believers then should display the character of our leader. We should display the character of the one to whom we belong to, which again is Christ. So our behavior affects then the public image and the reputation of Christ, what we do as individuals, and again, what we do collectively. Many of you remember the time when it seemed like almost every week there was some new televangelist that was not only getting in trouble, uh, but it was being just played over and over again all over the news. It was the big story of the day, the big story of the week. And after a while, you know what what we should have expected, and it did happen: was people began to say things about Christians, you know, that we're just a bunch of hypocrites, and you know, look at our leaders. And sometimes we're trying to say, well, that's not our leaders. We didn't appoint them. And, you know, just as more and more revelations came out, it was just, it was getting worse and worse, so to speak. Individuals were making jokes about believers, and we deserve that. We deserve all of those things. We need to remember and recognize that don't just think about those individuals and what bad guys they were. What we need to do is, you know, make sure that we aren't following suit. Not that we're going to necessarily be involved in the kinds of sins that they were involved in, but what we do and say and how we carry ourselves, it does matter. And then even when we fail, how we handle that matters. I know you've heard me before say this, that when it comes, for example, let's say in your workplace or maybe in relationships you have with others that are non-believers, that when we fail, when we mess up as individuals, it's really very important how we handle that and i believe that often the way we handle when we sin gives opportunity for great praise to the lord because the world is not accustomed to that what the world's accustomed to is that when an individual gets caught in doing wrong or when someone is found out in doing wrong the individual begins to make one excuse after another or we're trying to blame other individuals so the difference will be that when you and I mess up and we then go to an individual and ask them to forgive us, usually they may be kind of startled by that, they're not used to human beings accepting responsibility. And sometimes their response to you is they'll say, No, that's no big deal. You don't have to apologize to me. That's when you have a great opportunity. And you say, Oh, yes, I do. I must do that because I'm a Christian. And then there's a lot of ways, a lot of things you can add to that. It can be something like, I, I must do this because I never want to give you any reason to doubt who Christ is or what the gospel is about because of my actions. Or it could be that you want them to know by, and you tell them that, well, I, I need to do this because I'm, I'm a believer. And a true believer in Christ is one who seeks to live in obedience to what he says. And we also have a true care and concern for other people. And he commands me that when I do wrong, not only do I have to own up to it, but because I am to care for people, one of the ways that I express that is I ask them to forgive me. I want to make sure that things are okay. You see, in those responses, or maybe some other one that you come up with, what you are revealing to them is the character of Christ. It's not your sin that's revealing the character of Christ, but the way that you are handling it, the way you're approaching it, and what you're pointing out to them. And so there are are great opportunities for us. Uh, when we mess up and 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 uh, we need to make sure that we take advantage of those so again our behavior good or bad does uh, affect the public image and the reputation of Christ and we should care about that now as you go on in the passage here Paul then also says that he wants them to all speak the same thing and that there should be no divisions so what is the nature of these divisions And what is he really saying? What does he mean when he says that he wants them to speak the same thing? Well, when you look at this passage, you look up the word division in the Greek language. It's where we get our word uh, schism from. Uh, It's a division, a tear. Um, It it means to uh, break into a faction. Uh, There's one individual that I was reading. He was contrasting a schism with uh, heresy and says that when it comes to the word heresy, the word heresy indicates an opposition to accepted doctrine or practice, but not necessarily a pulling away or split. And the reason why he compared those two words is he wanted us to understand that this is not necessarily or limited to the idea that these individuals were, were not agreeing on what they should, should believe as believers. This was not that. Even though that kind of comes into the picture, it's a side issue, it was not central. In other words, the divisions that were caused here in this church were not in their disagreements among as, uh, individual members uh, as much as it was that they were focused on the wrong thing. In other words, they had allowed the norm of the secular Corinthian culture to influence the thinking of the church. Now, I'll kind of uh, explain that a little more in just a moment, but I want to get to this thing where Paul says that he wants them all to speak the same thing. Because he's not asking them to be drones or clones or robotic individuals who don't think for themselves. That's not what he's saying. He's not asking them or calling them to some kind of doctoral agreement. What he's really calling them to is their common testimony about Christ. That's what's being affected, is the testimony of Christ by their division. And so he is calling them to that, to speak the same thing when it comes to that. Paul wants them to be perfectly joined together. He wants them to be perfectly united. He desires that they be put back together as God had intended. Remember that when God saves us, he not only forgives us of our sin, he adopts us as his child, but he doesn't adopt us as an only child. We're adopted into his family of his children. And so we are then by that uh, united together. We don't have a choice in this. In the same way, I didn't have a choice as to who my siblings are. Uh, you know, my, my, I, have one, I have two sisters. One is, um, uh, I guess you'd say, by natural birth. The other one is adopted. But in neither case, did my parents seek my permission? They didn't ask me to vote. They didn't say, well, Bob, you know, we want to introduce to you. Uh, this is Kathy. She was born last week. Uh, we're now going to vote to see if we want to have uh, that, that was It was automatic. That's my sister. That's life. And then even when it came to adoption, I really wasn't asked. Uh, we were all in favor of it, but the idea is, is that you get who you get. So when it comes to ourselves as Christians, when we are adopted into the family, we are brothers and sisters in Christ, period. So that's no longer the issue. The issue is, is how do we treat each other? We are, there's an expectation that we treat each other in a particular way, and here the idea is that they are to be united so it doesn't mean, again, that they, that they agree on every single little thing. It doesn't mean that. But what it does mean is that they are together. They are of the same mind. They are in the same judgment. In other words, they, they are of the same judgment when it comes to the message of Christ. D.A. Carson says this in putting these things together. He says, in the Christian community, a united focus on restoration back to God's intended norm for his creation should instruct their thinking inform their purpose, and inspire their decisions. So as Paul is writing, I think it comes out as you read through this, Paul is very concerned about the troublesome reality of the splits that have been occurring in this body of believers. And he's not really concerned about the content or the details of each group. Sometimes individuals when they study through this passage, you know, they want to get into where one says, I'm of, you know, I'm of Cephas or I'm of Apollos or I'm of Paul. And they want to try to diagram what are the differences, you know, why is one group identifying with this guy and why is one group identifying with them and they're trying to dissect the content of maybe what that means. I don't think Paul really cares about that part. That's not what he's interested in. The strife here is caused because of their divisive Alliances. Whether these alliances at their root are political, social, ethnic, or racial, personal, or some combination, that really cannot be determined from the text. But what we do know is that the splits and the factions in the body devastate the church's testimony. In fact, Christians have no business being separated by political, social, or racial, or ethnic divisions. Period. We are to reveal the, the oneness of Christ. We, in a sense, kind of give a, a picture to people of what it means to be in the family of God, what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be rightly related to God, what it means to be healed of our infirmities, of our sins, to be forgiven. We, we need to reflect that. And what reflects that very powerfully is our relationships with each other. We've mentioned before when you look into the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus, uh, as he's preaching, talks about that uh, um, individuals need to see our love for each other. And when they see our love for each other, then they will know that the Father has sent the Son. Now, I I don't always make that connection logically when you just kind of put it out philosophically. But as you spend time thinking about it and read through the rest of the New Testament, it makes all the sense in the world. And when it comes to what other religions offer and other philosophies that people are pursuing... What brings us together as believers and the oneness that we have in Christ and the love that we are to have for each other and the way that love is to be demonstrated and manifested is a powerful testimony, a powerful manifestation of really of God himself. It is a testimony to what God does because the human heart is just wicked. And so we need to recognize that. In fact, uh, In the day and time we live in now, it seems that people as a whole, I guess you could on one hand say that people are much more sensitive, which is really unfortunate. Uh, It seems like every little thing offends them. But let me tell you what, this is my opinion. I think that many people who say they are offended are not offended at all. What it is, is they just don't like something. They don't like what you do, they don't like what you've said, or they don't like something. But that sounds kind of selfish, to make a real big deal about something you don't like. So enter a new power word, offend. And we can use it in all kinds of contexts. I'm talking to an individual, and they they may, may even confront me and say, Bob, I think sometimes you're a little rude. And I'll say, I'm offended by that. I know none of you can see me ever saying that to an individual. Have I ever said that? I don't think I have. But anyway, but the point is, is that, that it's overused all the time. Now, when someone uses it with you, that may not be the time to tell them that you don't really think they're offended. <laughs> uh, you may actually know they really just don't like what's going on. But we as believers must be different It's not so much that God gives us a tough skin, but tough skin, I think, kind of comes to the territory because what happens is my love for you, your love for me must be stronger than whatever is supposedly offensive. And too often, we mimic the world. We mimic the world and being offended at everything. And so we bring that into the church. And so the world comes and visits the church. The non-believer comes and visits us, and they see no difference. They see no difference, we know some of them. And they must see the difference. It used to be that the big thing uh, that people were emphasizing was, you know, the whole the ethnic diversity thing, and, and we needed to make sure that people understand that there is to be no that there's no differences in the ethnicities. It doesn't matter what your what your heritage is. It doesn't matter if if, if you are black or white or American Indian or from India or whatever it happens to be. We must treat each other. The same, which is loving each other with all our heart, mind, and soul. And, they, and the world must see that. They must see that. But now, in the time we live in, they must also see other things. So perhaps for some of you, we need to pray that God would send us a good number of yes. liberal Democrats to join our church <laughs> so we can love them and they can love us Because we refuse to allow any political opinion to cause us to have any kind of division. That's important. I even had someone ask me this question once. I won't say who it is, I won't even say if they're here now or not. Someone asked me this question Brother Bob, do you believe a person could be a Democrat and be a Christian? And they were serious. I said absolutely, I believe that. I said in fact, I think it might be sinful to think that's not possible. Then I asked them a question. I said, "Do you think it's possible that a person could be a Republican and not be a Christian?" (laughs) And they said, "Well, yes." It's a good answer. (laughs) Verse eleven. Paul writes this, he says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, uh, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. Basically what Paul is doing with this passage here is he's respond- he wants them to know that what he's responding to is something that he has been told directly by these people that are related to Chloe. In other words, this is not some rumor, this is not some hearsay, this has been reported to him. And so he, is- so he knows this is true. And he wants them to understand this. And so he asked the question in verse thirteen, in response to all this: Is Christ divided? Now, he, now it could be they maybe it's, it's true that they really never thought of it in this way, that the divisions that were going on among them, they weren't thinking it through theologically as to how this might look to others or be understood by others. And so he's he's bringing it back to Christ. So is Christ divided? Of course, most individuals, most believers would immediately say, Well, of course not. The word divided, or the verb that that he uses there, what he's really trying to uh, communicate is this Has Christ been divided and different parts handed out to different people? That very idea, as one man wrote, is grotesque and it must be rejected. Paul did not preach one Christ, and Apollos another Christ, and Peter another. There is but one Savior and one Gospel. How then did the Corinthians create this four-way division? Well, we look at human nature. Human nature enjoys following human leaders. We tend to identify more with spiritual leaders who help us and whose ministry we understand and enjoy. Instead of emphasizing the message of the Word, the Corinthians were emphasizing the messenger. They got their eyes off of the Lord and on the Lord's servant, and this led the competition. Let me read it to you again from verse 13 and following. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I have baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other, for Christ did not send me to baptize. But to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. It seems, when you read through this, that some believers felt a special allegiance, perhaps to the one who led them to faith in Christ, or maybe to the one who baptized them. And if that one happened to be well known or well respected, then all the better. Because there's this idea this is, that we kind of share at times that if we can identify with particular individuals, especially those who may be well-known, it was a way to gain maybe personal prominence. In other words, yeah, I uh, I, mean, I, I know you heard from Apollos, but I was converted to Paul himself. In fact, I know that you were baptized by Apollos, and he's a great guy, but he wasn't an apostle. I was baptized by an apostle, Paul. And there are those who think in their mind and those who will follow along thinking that somehow that you share in their glory, that somehow that you share in their authority because you have some connection with that individual. You see, the problem with cliques and factions is not so much that they are wrong, unbecoming, or a violation of a command. The problem is they violate the very character of God. When a church is divided... It no longer portrays the triune God. Rather than allowing Christ to change Corinth, the church was allowing Corinth to change Christ. It is always a danger for a church to downgrade itself to a mere religious expression of the culture that surrounds it. Seeking to gain prominence, respect, etc. from another person. Uh, is what our culture is doing as well. Our culture does that. They want to identify with certain individuals, whether it's a political leader or, or some famous individual, whatever it happens to be. They want to gain prominence themselves. I remember once we had a guy in the jail uh, and in, a, in the program that I was running, and um, he uh, wanted everyone to know that, I guess, he was a roadie uh, uh, setting up things for Reba McIntyre and her concerts, and somehow, in his mind, that gave him prominence. And he continued on and on, and and then it, 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 the story began to grow a little bit. And, and besides being one who set up the sound equipment, next thing you know, he's kind of hinting that he was kind of like a part of the background singers. And one day, he put all those rumors to rest. He sang a solo. Mercy sakes. It was bad. From the very beginning to the very end, uh, the whole thing was bad. And there were those, because not everybody in jail, as you know, is a Christian. Uh, Many of the men began to laugh. I was doing my best not to. Anyway, it was a bad scene. So we need to make sure that we as believers, that we're not following the world, trying to gain prominence, either socially or within the church, Trying to gain prominence because of someone else, because someone else is well known, or because there's some kind of a connection we have uh, to them. And then, of course, if we do think that, we tend then to think less of others, or maybe at least in some way we're better than others. Warren Wiersbe says this: the focus of the church should not be high-profile spiritual leaders and eloquent preachers, but Christ and His gospel. Some of you might be wondering about the name of the sermon today. It comes from a quote. I'll give you the quote. It's a story about Martin Luther. One day, Martin Luther was told that there were many individuals who were following him who were calling themselves Lutherans because of his name. Martin Luther had a temper. He got really upset. He was incensed. And he said in a loud voice, What is Luther? The teaching is not mine. How did I, poor, stinking bag of maggots that I am, come to the point where people call the children of Christ by my evil name? And then as he went on, he was also disgusted with the vainglory of many pastors in his day. And so he continued, May God protect us against the preachers who please all the people and enjoy a good testimony from everybody. What the hearer should say is, I do not believe in my pastor, but he tells me of another Lord whose name is Christ. I want to read to you, this is a composite that I put together. I was looking at several different confessions of some leaders, pastors, etc. And I kind of put this together to read to you this morning in closing. And it goes this way. I would love to be able to say that I am a wonderful, open, loving person and that I don't judge anyone by appearance or association. But that's not just the case. I judge and I hate it. Oh, those things, associations and appearance, they matter to a degree. But I still judge in this manner much more often than I should. And it causes me a great deal of unhappiness within me. I judge others by their clothing the way they carry themselves, and the way they look. I judge others' words. I know we all do this to some extent, and I also know that it relates a great deal also to how we feel about ourselves, which again is an indicator as to where I am in my relationship with Christ. If you are content with who you are in Christ, you are a lot less likely to feel the need to judge others, to jump to conclusions and or use your superficial evaluation of them to elevate yourself in your own mind though I'm becoming a lot more content with who I am in Christ and therefore judge others less, I still have a long way to go. Christ saved me and redeemed me to be not just a better person, but to be a different person, to be like him, to relate to others like he did, to see beyond the superficial, to cease in viewing them as a building block to improve my self-esteem and to no longer use them as a stepping stone to greater self-empowerment because it really is all about Christ and who he is. So I trust this morning that we will recognize the responsibility that we carry by the nature of our second birth, that we are Christians. We happen to be members of Ferguson Avenue Baptist Church, but we are Christians And individually and also collectively, the way we behave does affect the reputation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's bow in prayer. Father in heaven, again as always, we thank you for your grace, kindness, love, and your great patience with us, and that you often overlook our sin. So often, Father, we have experienced your mercy because you have not judged us or treated us according to our sinfulness. Father, so often we have committed the same kinds of wrongdoing that the Corinthians have committed. Sometimes it's worse because we still think ourselves justified. Father, we ask that you would forgive us of that kind of thinking. We pray, Lord, that you would enable us, that you would help us to submit ourselves truly to the Lordship of Christ, to bow before the Word of God, to allow the Spirit of God to not only convict us of our wrongdoing, but to lead us to repentance, and then, Father, we ask that Your Spirit would strengthen us to live in obedience to what the Word of God says, and to treat each other accordingly. In fact, to treat all others as Christ would treat them. Father, there are, as always, we know that there are maybe some here today who don't know Christ. And Father, perhaps they have realized that they do treat other people very poorly. In fact, maybe they have treated them poorly for a real long time. And that may be evident that, that they don't know Christ because it's always been that way. I pray, Lord, that if they have been harmed by other believers, that you will not allow them to use that as an excuse to stay away from you. We pray that they would look at the person of Christ, and what Christ has done. And they would believe in Christ for the, for the forgiveness of their sins and the saving of their soul. Remind them, Lord, that it is no individual believer that has the ability to forgive them or to save them, but Christ and Christ alone. And so, Father, again, we pray that you would work on their heart and draw them to yourself. As always, we do thank you and ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.